Hey guys, it's Quinn. And Brian. Hey, uh, just checking in real quick. Uh, you might have noticed it's hot as fuck outside. Real hot. Uh, wherever you might be. Europe, hot as fuck. Greenland, hot as fuck. Los Angeles, getting hot as fuck. Uh, Midwest, everywhere. Oh, yeah. Good times. We thought this was a pretty timely moment um, to replay one of our favorite episodes uh, and our most important episodes. I believe it was 50. Is that right, Brian? 50? Yes, sir. Um, and it was titled, It's Getting Hot in Here. And America's poor are dying faster than everyone else. Yeah. Uh, and our guests were? Uh, we were talking to Yesim Sayan Taylor and mm-hmm. Molly Peterson. Oh, Molly Peterson. Uh, and we talked a lot about urban heat, specifically in this case about D.C. and Los Angeles. But uh, as you might have noticed, it applies everywhere. So please enjoy this uh, very special replay uh, from last winter. I know it doesn't feel like winter and it's not going to yeah, again, ever, ever, <laughs> ever, I think. So that's uh, it. No. Uh, okay, we'll talk to you later. Thanks so much. Our guests today are Yeshem Sayan Taylor and returning, uh, probably with great remorse, the intrepid reporter <laughs> Molly Peterson. Uh, and together we're going to discuss uh, the following. It's getting hot in here and America's poor are, not surprisingly, dying faster than everyone else. Uh, Yeshem and Molly, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're very happy to have you. Yep. Uh, Okay, let's just do some quick intros. Um, Yeshem, if you want to just tell everybody who you are and what you do. Yeah, uh, my name is Yeshem Sayan-Taylor. I am an economist and I run a think tank that's focused on the District of Columbia. Interesting. And and, and what specifically are you guys uh, focused on there? I mean, I know DC is a pretty complicated endeavor. Yeah, it's a very interesting city. It's uh, essentially... A, a very poor city and a rich city combined all together. Mm. And we work on the uh, demographic changes and that's happening in the city um, and gentrification and displacement are big problems. Also, um, sort of differences in quality of life in different parts of the city. Um, so the, the, anything that has to do with the city's economy, demography, and things that make the city attractive to the residents and things that... Uh, push residents out of the city, um, education, healthcare, uh, and, and such. I like it. Um, two things. One, uh, inequality in a city. That's, <laughs> we got Molly on the line for a reason. Uh, yeah. LA and DC are very different and at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, very similar. And two, I'm actually from Virginia. So DC was my big city experience growing up. That's, I have a, a, a bit of familiarity to it. And it's been very mm-hmm. interesting to watch it both change and not change at all over the past 20, 25 years. Are you from that area? Uh, Why did you choose D.C.? Well, I live in the area and I've moved from Turkey to uh, United States to Northern Virginia, and I have not lived anywhere else since then. Okay. I worked on the the city's finances. I was part of the group that does the revenue estimates for the city, for about 10 years. And that was a natural transition to move into more of the policy areas um, from just the fiscal side. Sure. That makes sense. Molly Peterson, could wow. you rehash for our listeners uh, who you are and, and why you're here today? Uh, yeah, I'm an independent climate change reporter. I work in public media. And um, for the last couple of years, I've been measuring heat in communities in uh, Southern California and in Northern California in people's housing circumstances and at work. And I specifically focused on people who are in precarious situations or people who don't have air conditioning. Awesome. 
I think that's going to be uh, a pretty fascinating topic here today. Yeah, glad to have you both. All right, so uh, uh, as always, uh, we're going to set up some context uh, for today's conversation. Uh, and the end goal is uh, to to get some questions answered uh, that those answers are actionable so we can have all of our listeners uh, support you and support uh, uh, what you're doing and what you're saying, if that sounds good. Yes. Rock and roll. All right. So, uh, Yesham and Molly, uh, we start with one important question, uh, something to set the tone. Yesham, instead of saying, uh, tell us your life story, we'd like to ask, uh, why are you vital to the survival of the species? Um, um, I have children. I don't know. I am an economist, so by design, it makes me very optimistic about our future, but also makes me very sort of aware of what it takes to do as even a single thing. You know, people think of economists as of those naysayers, doomsday people telling you what you cannot do all the time. But when I look around me, I see how markets work together to bring us stuff. Um, that makes me very optimistic about the future. I, I do care deeply about the future, but I don't really care about like five years, 10 years from now. I care much deeply about, you know, 50, 100 years from now. I'm very curious about it. And other than that, and adding to the demand and making the machine work, <laughs> um, I think the uh, universe can survive without me quite fine. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, Molly, you've actually answered this question before, um, but I'm curious if you have uh, any update on that. You, 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 you put forth a great Tom Stopper quote, uh, <laughs> uh, information is light about anything about anything is good, which uh, I couldn't agree with more. But boy, is that under fire these days. Uh, any any new thoughts on on why you're making the universe run? Hey, can I just copy what Yeshim said? Because I'm also very interested in um, where we're going in five years and 10 years and 50 years. And yet, like, I'm also very interested in the thing we don't talk as much about, which is what's happening to people right now now. Mm -hmm. So um, I guess I think I'm valuable to the survival of the species because I'm interested in the lives of so many people in our species. I love that. That is that is awesome. We're, we're trying our best over here. But uh, as we've said, uh, or tried to say publicly as many times as possible on this podcast, we're a couple white guys and we have had our turn. So <laughs> yeah. uh, the, the more we can help enable folks like you, uh, the better, because then the universe and species will be a much better place, finally. All right, so let's set up a little topic uh, for today's question, which again is about uh, heat in the cities. And uh, Yesham and Molly, please jump in, correct us, hang up, uh, whatever you uh, feel is, is most appropriate. I'm going to kind of build to, to where we are here. So look, life expectancy is down in the U.S. for the third year in a row, right? It's the longest since the Spanish flu, which is mostly drugs, uh, alcohol and suicide. We're having mm -hmm. a lot of issues there. Of course, it's not affecting everyone equally. Uh, the rich are living longer, uh, five years longer than they were uh, a decade or two ago. The poor are even less so. And of course, we're attacking the very things that are keeping them alive, uh, whether that's CHIP or Medicaid work requirements. Um, uh, men at the top 1% uh, right now are living 15 years longer than the men at the bottom 1%. Wow. Um, women, about the same thing. It's a 10-year gap. Um, and mm -hmm. interestingly enough, access to healthcare theoretically applies to only 10 to 20% of health outcomes, but smoking 
eating healthy, exercise, and of course, environmental exposure, which is a pretty broad term, uh, is a large part of it. Um, we are 43rd among 195 nations with an average lifespan of 78.7. Uh, and the latest moves from the president and his wonderful friends are projecting us out to drop to 64th by 2040. Damn. So uh, why else? Environmental issues, uh, whether it's air, water, it, we're seeing it everywhere in the world, and it's actually visible in so many places. You look at what's happening in Delhi, uh, where the air theoretically is costing uh, folks nine years of their life expectancy. Uh, look at London. Exposure to fine particles are contributing to 7 million premature deaths a year, which is about the same as tobacco and 15 times as many as uh, war and homicides combined. Um, and it's not just poor cities, it's not just rich cities, it's the cities, the sprawling cities in the middle like Delhi and Cairo. But uh, people want that fix, but they're also doing uh, things like rebelling because there's a lot of inequality. Uh, look at Paris, what's happening there. They're protesting the fuel taxes, but also uh, so much more despite uh, 2,500 premature deaths a year from the air there. Um, and we look at what's happening again in New York, uh, look in what's happening in London. Uh, in Los Angeles. But of course, pollution isn't the old, only culprit, right? It's getting a hell of a lot hotter and the poor are feeding, feeling it the most. They can't afford air conditioning. Uh, and thanks to our uh, broken and possibly inexpensive or expensive healthcare system, uh, they're more likely to have health conditions uh, exacerbated by heat. And now they can't escape it because uh, their neighborhoods don't have a ton of trees or parks. Uh, when you don't have trees, it doesn't get cooler at night, uh, which is really important for our bodies, it turns out. And that's true. Uh, in many cities, uh, a lot of southern cities, certainly, uh, like D.C. and Atlanta, uh, Texas, Florida, where there's a lot of uh, older folks, and certainly uh, Los Angeles. So let's dig into that. Let's dig into the heat, um, because as usual, uh, inequality is is spiking, has spiked, is going further, and, and the heat is doing the same thing. So, Yesham, if you could tell us a little bit about what makes Washington, D.C., unique in this context, uh, what, what the overlap is with geography, demographics, industry, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. I'm not sure if in terms of urban heat in, uh, index, uh, indices, uh, Washington, D.C. is unique. But um, any day in D.C., let's say in a summer day, like the official temperature is 90 degrees. There will be parts of the city, uh, and I'm not talking about tops of rivers or um, things like that, neighborhoods in the city where it's as low as 80 degrees Fahrenheit because of tree coverage. And there will be parts of the city that will be um, as warm as 102 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, for example, downtown area where there are no trees, but also parts that are east of the Anacostia uh, River, which are generally lower income uh, parts and parts of the city where there is a deeply concentrated poverty. There are no trees. There is uh, no way to shield from the heat. Uh, and the heat itself is not particularly a problem. It's bad, but can you escape it is the second question. So mm -hmm. um, obviously in, in low-income neighborhoods, I was very surprised when I heard sto stories that elderly people will open their refrigerator doors, stand in front of them and just get pneumonia and die. I'd never heard that before. And I come from a relatively poor country. That was like an like a whole different story of poverty for mm -hmm. me. That just like was really shocking. But also, imagine you're in downtown DC. If you've never been he here, it's lots of offices, lots of people on the street. Does it get too hot? You just walk into a coffee shop. You go to a bank, 
you know, mm-hmm. stand next to the ATM machine. You go to a library and you can escape heat uh, in public places or places open to public. Um, if you're in certain parts of the District of Columbia, there are no restaurants, there are no coffee shops, there are no bank branches, nothing. So you can't escape the heat by even sort of taking refuge in somebody else's place. Right. And that makes the problem even harder. And when you include, you know, humidity, which is terrible here, the heat index can go up to 115 degrees. I mean, mm-hmm. it's intolerable and people don't have anywhere to escape. What makes it really bad is this sort of exposure to these kinds of risks. I mean, you've talked about smoking, drug use and things like that. Some of those things you could just say, ah, you know, it, these are these social cultural problems are deeply rooted in the family. It's really hard to turn them around. But with the heat stuff, I mean, you don't, the only thing that really matters here is access to amenities. That can be solved relatively easily, but there is very little willpower to do that. And and do you mean willpower uh, f- from the city itself? And and you know what? Maybe we we, I, I, we try to do this uh, as often as we can. Mm-hmm. DC is obviously a unique place because it is not a it is not a state. It is not right. a city. Could you actually just very quickly for our mm-hmm. listeners describe how Washington DC works? Uh, yeah. literally, technically, because I don't think most people realize how it works or it doesn't work. Yeah, D.C. is not a state or a city. It's both. So unlike um, many other states where there's a dis- sort of a division of state-level functions and local-level functions, for example, in California, um, the state will um, do health policy and transportation policy, but it will be the localities doing zoning, uh, police, firefighters, um, schools. And uh, in the district, they're all together. uh, At the same time, the city can also raise both state-level taxes. Usually, it would be like income taxes, franchise taxes, things like that. And local-level taxes, property taxes in in California are very local, goes to the local jurisdiction. In the district, the revenue-raising power is also concentrated in the hands of the government. And it's about a $13 million billion uh, operation, the district's government, um, about $8 billion of it collected through own resources. The remainder is uh, federal grants like Medicare, Medicaid, you know, what everybody else gets. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in the hands of a city council made up of 13 people and a mayor that's very much like a governor. So it's a very mm. concentrated government. And um, it's also the seat of the nation. So we... We have a very progressive uh, council and we are open to many, many ideas. Um, lots of people come to D.C. T- because it's easy to pass legislation. They'll come up with ideas and say, hey, let's do it in D.C. We can push this thing through. So we struggle a lot with a lot of you know, well-intended idea, intentioned ideas, but not necessarily good fits for the city. Mm. Um, so we hear it first here. <laughs> <laughs> But and, and, and yet you said there's. Uh, thank you for describing that. By the way, I think that's really helpful. Um, and of course, uh, for everyone to understand, Washington D.C. does not have uh, representatives in Congress or Senate, nope. which is a nightmare. Um, but you, but you said it, it can be very progressive, and yet uh, there's not a lot of willpower to to fix the issues. Could you just uh, talk to us a little bit? That what, where would that willpower come from? Is that among the people? Is that among the DC voting electorate is that among the city council and the the mayor? 
I think all, including the business community as well. I mean, I work with the business community very closely. Um, there is certainly a concentration issue. There are parts of the city that are really great to live in. I mean, we attract about 10,000 new residents every year. And they go to parts of the city, you know, singles and couples and millennials and increasingly families. They find themselves looking for housing in places where the schools are good, where the infrastructure is good. And so there is a larger concentration of people in places with uh, amenities, certainly, and a relatively higher income who are more likely to participate in the politics and express themselves mm -hmm. uh, more strongly. And then there are parts of the city that don't have very good schools. The buses don't go nearby. I mean, we have a metro station. Across from it are two single-family homes and a Denny's. That is crazy. There should be huge buildings there, parking people, coffee shops and things like that. But it's poor part of the city. So mm. even we don't take very good advantage of the public, public amenities. So when it comes to that sort of uh, kinds of investments that will trigger interest from the businesses and things like that. They have largely escaped some parts of the city. Um, and others have, um, and, and because the housing market is kind of too restrained, even in poor neighborhoods, there is sort of people both want the investment and not want the investment. They worry that, you know, they look at Starbucks and gyms as markers of gentrification. They feel like if a coffee shop comes, the next thing that's going to happen is they're going to have to pack their bags and mm, move to right, uh, move out right. outside of the city. Sure. So it's a very complicated sure. feeling. Sure. Very interesting. That that's really helpful. Thank you for and, and I'm, I'm looking forward to digging into that some more. And, and I I want to note on the humidity front. Like I said, I'm from Virginia. I'm fully aware of that humidity. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I miss it, like when I wake up in Los Angeles with a bloody nose because it's so dry oh, here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, you know, the New York Times actually did some reporting recently on, um, um, and I know you guys both talked about thinking about what the next 50, 100 years is going to look like. There, There's talk of, and this is happening in some places in the world already, where uh, in 30, 40, 50, 80 years, there will be combinations of heat and humidity so extreme, uh, and this is quoting from the New York Times, that the evaporation of human sweat won't sufficiently cool our bodies, leaving even healthy adults at risk of death from overheating. And the projections say that by 2080, more than 3 billion people uh, could experience a heat index above 122. 122. So, uh, because everything is on fire out here. Uh, Molly, could you uh, step in and, and compare and contrast and illustrate for Los Angeles a little bit? You've done a ton of reporting. Could you talk a little bit about um, how you got into the reporting you've been doing and, and where you've been focusing? Yeah, to to also to reinforce Yesim's point, I mean, I think um, D.C. is a really um, stark example of urban heat. Um, because it's it's a it's not a unique example, but it's a really stark example, a really extreme example of the urban heat island effect. So there's the urban heat island effect, of course, and then there's the urban heat people experience through all of these environments that they spend time in, whether they're in an apartment that doesn't have heat, a brownstone where the heat rises, or standing in front of a refrigerator getting a cold. I got really interested in heat because I, for a couple of reasons. One, the obvious selfish reason, I live in a place that's 100 years old that doesn't have air conditioning. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I was really feeling it when we started um, doing satellite office work a few years ago at one of the outlets I worked at because they were like, work in your home office. And um, my home office was 95 degrees during the day. So, but more importantly, I just really, I was looking for, the state of California looks at public health impacts from climate change. There's some very obvious ones. Southern California has terrible air for example. Um, But heat is this threat multiplier that dries out vegetation, that makes the air worse, that raises risks for fire. And I thought nobody really studies heat or pays a lot of attention to it. So we started, I worked with um, uh, something called IC Change and NASA Citizen Science Observation Group that was working with WNYC to measure heat in Harlem. And I thought, you know what? Let's do it in the San Fernando Valley too. So I did it in Pacoima, in a neighborhood that sounds a lot like where Yesim's describing. Um, you know, it's it's a food desert. Um, there's a, a Starbucks the next town over and everyone's really suspicious of it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, measuring heat in these houses, I found that uh, it these houses hold on to heat into the times of day when people return from work and school and make it uncomfortable pe- for people at the time they spend the most time inside a building. Hmm. So to Yesim's point, the infrastructure that we've built, and there's a lot of science behind this too, by the way. Uh, I talked to a researcher at UC Berkeley who looked at, I think, 300 cities and found that in general, people of color, particularly African-Americans in urban areas, are more likely to live in these high heat risk neighborhoods compared to white people. And the disparity is more extreme in racially segregated cities where there was less communal effort towards building parks and areas of trees uh, where things can work out. New, I mean, uh, D.C. is a complicated example of that because there's this beautiful Rock Creek Park with um, and Dumbarton Oaks and all these places in the northwest part of the city where there's all those trees that cool everything down. But D.C. also has a really segregated history. <laughs> I think that's an understatement. And Molly, you lived in D.C. a little bit, right? Yeah, I went to college there, but I worked at NPR too. So a couple times. Oh, got yeah. it. That's interesting. And, and, and now you've talked a little bit about, again, how, how these buildings and these homes hold the heat into the until the evening and the night so 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 they are they are crisp by and and at times very sweaty by the time you get there but molly you've also talked uh you've done some some work on on the heat in schools as well is that right yeah that's right i mean basically i looked every place people spend huge amounts of time the greatest place that people spend time um, it's something like 71% in the rest of the country and 60% in California is in their home. But kids spend time all day long in school. Mm-hmm. And so I was curious about how much uh, the, the Los Angeles Unified School District, um, like a lot of school districts in California, frankly, has 100% air conditioning. But that air conditioning breaks down or may never work. So we looked at um, air conditioner breakdowns over the last 10 years mm-hmm. and found that it kind of roughly tracked to as it got, gets hotter, there's more breakdowns. And also in some neighborhoods um, where the buildings are more poorly maintained, where the investment in the community is poorer, and coincidentally, where it's hotter, generally, there were more breakdowns. So Southeast Los Angeles. 
Huntington Park. There, these these neighborhoods, Los Angeles, um, for people who aren't familiar with it, the city of Los Angeles also has around it these very small cities that are part of the Los Angeles Unified School District, but um, kind of have the same climate as greater Los Angeles, like down just south of downtown. And those neighborhoods really suffered. I had uh, uh, what was called exercise-induced asthma growing up. And I remember the Virginia humidity uh, always made it terrible. And I had five or six ambulance trips uh, to the hospital because I'd have a terrible attack. Um, you know, they they pulled me out of my uh, r- the pool I used to swim and race in and, and I'd go. And then they would make me stay home and stay in the air conditioning all the next day and be cool. And, and that makes me think of a few things. One, um, that my family could afford to pay for those ambulance rides, which are incomprehensibly expensive. Two, that I had the air conditioning that I could then go home from. Three, that I had a parent who could stay home from work to take care of me the next day because they just crush you so much. And I think, again, about how this is so... That was 30 years ago and about how many more children are exposed to that on a day-to-day basis. And it's not just exercise-induced, that they have these things that are endemic to their environment and they have nowhere to go or they can't pay those bills. And it is just a travesty, and it seems pretty equal among the two places. Yeah. Um, uh, so Yashem, you mentioned that there's little uh, or, or less than needed push um, to attack these issues in DC. What, what has DC done and, and you know, what's the low hanging fruit that, that could be tackled, you know, that our listeners should be most aware of? Um, yeah. So there are a number of things that come to mind, uh, but before I get to that, I just want to make another comment on so for how our, our environment is changing, we've seen from the fires in California and some other news that came out of Europe uh, that, you know, we focus on heat and we say, like Molly explained that, that there will be a time where, or or you've talked about when the heat becomes so intolerable, so high that it gets to a point where, you know, we can't really survive under it. Mm-hmm. But deep, even before we get there, Certain things that we do and don't really think twice about will become hugely problematic, like throwing a cigarette butt out the window can cause fires now because it's so hot and dry. So the certain actions that we take, not really worrying about their implications, will become increasingly dangerous. And I, I think we will learn those things the hard way. So going back to DC, I, I think there are a number of low-hanging fruits, it, some or obvious things to do. I'm, you know, in the District of Columbia, we are famous for taking things very simple and turning them into very complicated problems. <laughs> so I would not venture to say that you know there are simple things to do. But for example, uh, Molly mentioned the Rock Creek Park, and it is a fabulous asset, but it's really not accessible to uh, people who are east of the river. But think of the Anacostia River. It's a, it's a second river that runs through the city. Around it is largely federal land. First, it's incredibly polluted. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of work in cleaning it up. But um, I mean, it's a huge asset that really is not used because it's got silt in it. It needs to be dredged. Terribly expensive. Uh, I mean, the jokes about what you will find in it if you ever to go in are just not even funny anymore. But look mm-hmm. at the land around it is largely federally owned, has used restrictions on it. So you cannot really open parts near the river with trees that can be very conducive to right. a cooler place because the feds say to the District of Columbia, well, here you can only have sports facilities. If I am 
poor. I don't really care a bit about another soccer field. Or I mean, it's great. That I don't want to make people who play soccer angry. Especially, no, come you're, on. you're talking to but, a soccer lover no, right here. But let's be yeah, honest. I, and again, it comes back to the fact that you don't even have representation in Congress to 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 fight these fights. You have to ask someone else to do it. It's insane. Yeah, and uh, uh, so the land use is a terrible thing, but also land use in the District of Columbia too, not just under the control of the feds, but under our own control through our own zoning uh, rules. It is also incredibly segregational, if I may say. I mean, if you go anywhere in DC, if if you were to say, oh, there are too many Hispanics in my neighborhood. You know, the progressive heads will explode. Nobody will talk to you. You'll be ostracized forever. But you could say, ah, I like my neighborhood the way that it is. I love the single family homes and I don't want right. a multi-family unit. All of, but it's essentially the same kind of nativism. It's the same kind of, kind of, um, like, I don't want those people who live in multi-family units. You know, they smell like curry. Yeah, you're and they saying the same the thing. And I don't want, it's like, yeah, you're saying the same thing, really. And I think there is also this sort of big discrepancy in the sense that there is a part of the city which is so rich. I mean, I'll give you some a, a, a data point that made me made me really think hard. Since 2000, you know, I was looking at housing in DC. We have added about like 22,000 condominiums, mm-hmm. multi-family units, and the total value of condominiums in the city not just the new ones, but everything, increased by about $17 billion. Great, right? Mm-hmm. Since 2000, we've added like 85 single-family units. Fine. I mean, that's good. We should not really be building single-family units. This is not suburbia. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I grew up in Turkey, only like villagers and poor people lived in single-family right. units. Everybody right. else lived in a city, right. in, a, in an apartment. Right. And um, we've added 85 single-family homes. Their, the total value of single-family homes increased by $25 billion. <laughs> It's just Whoa. really... Wait, and then, I don't and even then, understand the, the fucking math on that. Like, Yeah, how is that right? <laughs> well, you know, though, you know the, something that occurs to me as you're talking is that Los Angeles has a lot of these same problems. Oh, yeah. We yeah. aren't densifying. And we have all kinds of representation. So, um, you know, representation isn't necessarily going to be this cure-all. Like when I talked to the city of Los Angeles last year about all my findings about um, housing in these neighborhoods, you know, Los Angeles was doing this big sustainability push. I talked to the city's chief sustainability officer. I mean, I was describing to her like housing, a rise in housing disputes and low-income housing overheat in which, you know, there was one family that I memorably talked to who the oldest daughter was six and she was in diapers because she was afraid to get out of her bed at night. Because during hot times, the rats would come running out of the wall into the house to cool down. And that's like a real problem right now that that's not getting addressed by representation. So on the plus side, because there is a positive here, the positive is that there are neighborhood level efforts and even efforts that utilities are involved in to try to think about how to transform small areas and give them kind of a different relationship to an urban environment. DC has, and you see, I'm sure you know so much about this. D- DC mm-hmm. has this kind of amazing, like there's beautiful urban planning and urban design in it. And then there's challenges as a result of it. There's the heat that builds up in the tall row houses 
and I'm thinking even in Northeast, like like around Georgia right. Avenue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, you know, those houses don't have, there's no room for trees in between those houses. Mm. They've got tar paper on the roof. Those attic rooms are, you know, I mean, people die in there. Yeah. And, but there is a way, I talked to some urban designers in Los Angeles about how you can keep those buildings intact, but maybe put um, vegetative structures over them. So you're, you can keep the urban kind of footprint as it is, mm-hmm. you know, you wouldn't have to de-densify, but you could also improve the flow of um, cooling moisture and cooling air in some places. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's adjustments that can be made, but the, where the government has to help with that or where private industry would help would be with kind of the retrofit and incentive money. Sure. That would help yeah. do that. Yeah. I actually ran into this really interesting group that does some work on its own, on, on especially housing in low-income areas, especially for children who have asthma. They found this brilliant way of paying for all of this stuff, and it's through Medicaid. They basically make a case that if you go and improve the conditions in the homes, the trips to the hospitals will be we'll reduced. Sure. So, so they've been able to... Um, use some federal money that would otherwise go to pay for, you know, doctors and services mm. to actually make improvements in houses. But but there are, you know, of, given of all the things that we could do, it's just a small amount of money. And retrofits are really important. But retrofits, you know, it kind of when you start thinking about retrofits, think of rent controlled buildings. There's very little incentive. You know, there's a part of us that love, I'm an, I'm an economist, so I don't like rent control. I'll be very open about <laughs> it. But like, it's very hard for a mayor to come and say, oh, I hate rent control. Again, she'll just lose or he'll just lose. But when we force large multifamily units into this, there's no incentive for the landlord to make improvements. Um, there is also like, there's so much sort of user error in some of this stuff. It's really hard to make a whole lot of uh, impact. Mm-hmm. What do you think of um, like efforts? Like I'm thinking about Enterprise Community Partners, which has mm-hmm. its roots kind of where you are, but they do a lot of work in Southern California that I've covered that has focused on increasingly in Southern California on multi-unit buildings, which are rented. They may, depending on whether they're in the city of Los Angeles or not, they're subject to rent control, but they basically figure out a way to leverage financing to make this work out. And they, and they, they, they kind of leverage private. I, now I'm talking completely. I'm not an no, economist, no, no. but, um, <laughs> but, um, so I, I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. All my, my poor economics professors in college are like, but basically they combine <laughs> private financing with federal mm-hmm. grants and federal programs and they find low interest rate loans and they help these building owners do this. Absolutely. I think, when you look at the universe of affordable housing in the District of Columbia, a lot of the privately owned affordable housing units are owned by mission-driven organizations. And you absolutely need that. Uh, but can you mix incomes in those neighborhoods? That's really the hard part. Oh, yeah. that's not, And that's certainly not even remotely a point of discussion mm-hmm. for, for these yeah. neighborhoods. I mean, yeah. like at this point, this is really more about, um, in Los Angeles, I, I think because Los Angeles County is so sprawling and really can be very, very economically segregated, the the discussion is really more, I find that what I cover is people talking about bringing some neighborhoods up 
to some sort of an equitable level rather than <laughs> integrating them economically mm-hmm. better the way you would have to do in a place like DC. Right. And I do want to just again for our listeners who are not in Los Angeles, and sometimes I realize even Los Angeles folks don't realize this, just to paint the picture again when we're talking about how we get stuff done and is there progress and how does it get get made. It Los Angeles is not one city, even though we talk about it sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's not five or ten. There are 88 cities in Los Angeles County. So and Yet, for example, we have one school system for that entire county, for better or worse. The just, uh, you know, random statistic: the the budget for food for for Los Angeles County uh, LAUSD students is six and a half billion dollars. You know, so <laughs> but at the same time, Molly, you talked about, and this is where I want to dig in a little bit here: uh, is w- where we where progress is being made here, and and where the low hanging fruit is. It seems like a lot of that is is starting to be or should be or could be on a more even one of those 88 cities or even on a more specifically local level because the county is so unwieldy and sprawling. Yeah, I mean, like, for example, one of the um, stories I haven't really reported out, but I've talked to people involved in the program is Southern California Edison, which is a utility, um, had federal grant money to sort of explore they're just trying to learn more. One of the huge problems is an absence of data, right? We, uh, it's hard, we're at this point where in California, we're talking about smart meters, um, but people are worried about being surveilled or worried about devices being hacked. So there's this tension there about whether that's a good idea. And so the, what they're trying to do is learn more about when people use energy in these low-income communities and how that energy use differs. So um, a researcher at UCLA, Stephanie Pincel, made something called an energy atlas that shows by neighborhood and, you know, in some cases city, all around Los Angeles, who uses what energy where. And it's really striking because you learn a lot about not only what times of day people use energy, but in some cases where they've done more research, what kind of, like, what kind of appliances they use it on. Um, obviously people with massive single family homes use a huge amount of energy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, our energy use, uh, this gets really complicated really fast and we're not going to have time to get into this, but, um, <laughs> but, but, but our energy use influences the cost of the energy. Um, you know, we have time of use pricing in mm-hmm. California and one of the very real problems we're going to run into in the future is there's something called a duck curve. So when, um, it, it's basically, it looks like the back of a duck and there's huge energy use in the morning. And then it declines during the day as people go to, this is um, residential energy use, as people go to other places, use their air conditioning, use their power, and then they return home and do laundry and, right. um, mm-hmm. you know, and and dishwashers. That curve um, means that poor people, even poor people who can afford to run the air conditioner, soon will be paying more money. Um, so we're at a place where huh. we have two or three years to really start <laughs> trying to think very, very hard about a solution, or we very well might see more heat illness problems in certain communities. Wow. I just don't think people realize how connected everything is. Like, right. I, mean, I, I don't. Right. Um, well, now you do. <laughs> now I do. So what, what, what should citizens, you know, specifically uh, in this case, our listeners, you know, who are in LA and DC and cities like it, should be asking um, of their representatives? What should they be demanding? And, and most of our listeners, you know, are are lucky enough and or right. worked hard enough, whatever you, however you want to phrase it, uh, aren't in those situations uh, or or not as badly though. If things keep getting hotter, they will be. Yeah. Uh, regardless, uh, we want them to 
have specific ways to use, as we like to say, their voice, their vote, and their dollar to to stand up for those that are, yeah. like Molly said, uh, already feeling that right now. So so let's get specific. Start with DC for me, Yeshem. What are the questions they should be asking or what should they be demanding specifically? I think the first thing um, is to really educate the citizens, uh, the residents of the District of Columbia on how important density is. Like, there is a great distaste for density uh, in DC and I'd, similarly, many places in the uh, in the United States, people do value space, backyards and things like that. But mm-hmm. there is a high, very, very high cost of, you know, living in these spread, sprawl mm-hmm. situations. Mm-hmm. I think the second thing that's really important is sort of bridging the gap. There are lots of good ideas out there um, in the District of Columbia they're developed by people who do not live through the problems that they want to solve, whether it's uh. high heat or environmental pollution or bad schools. And that really isolates uh, communities. Uh, you know, the, we have all these solutions that are not particularly good fits for us. I, I think the residents should demand to learn more about the full sort of the life outcomes in the city. Mm-hmm. And if I could, I if I could the, actually just uh, pause right there and ask: so, where are the best places uh, our listeners can go to educate themselves on density and and things like that? Are, are there specific resources? Uh, yeah, there are various. Uh, for example, Greater Greater Washington is a great um, collection of researchers, sort of tech, techie type people. And transportation nerds mm-hmm. <laughs> that are, you know, socially inaccessible, but can ride really well. <laughs> right. Those are our people. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that's right. And, uh, and even just trying to go to the other side of the city. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, one of the pet peeves I have is this car-free stuff that's going on. People talk about car-free, car-free, car-free DC, car-free DC. I mean, it means a very... Different thing if you live in a neighborhood with no grocery stores, no bus stops, no job centers. Sure. Car-free is actually not possible. Car-free is a sign of being rather affluent in the city. Um, just like walking and riding your bike to work is, you know, basically you've won the income lottery. Otherwise, you're too far away from these places. Just go and check out the other parts of the city and see what's going on there. I think there are people, so there's a part of the city that kind of, acts like like a foundation with a big endowment. So its wealth is all in its past and they're doing everything they can to preserve it. And that leads to all kinds of policies that can be very influential, but they're not particularly helpful to people whose wealth has never been in their past. It is hopefully in their future if they do have a good shot in life. I, just bridging that gap to me is really important. And that's kind of the work we're trying to do at the policy center, uh, where I, uh, the think tank that I run. No, I, I think that's all very, very fundamental um, and, and makes a lot of sense. And you're right on the car-free thing. It's uh, on one hand, you know, uh, cars are such a significant part of our emissions. And yet on the other hand, sprawl and lack of public transportation, affordable public transportation, or like in Los Angeles, any public transportation at at all (laughs) makes it Mm -hmm. really Mm -hmm. hard to go without a car. Uh, So Molly, can you dig in a little bit on uh, specifically what, again, in an area with massive inequality, what our listeners should be asking and and demanding uh, in Los Angeles? I, I mean, I think looking at heat, I, I, and if my my origin story for reporting on this issue is any example, can just be a really 
selfish inquiry because right. heat is this sneaky thing that you encounter that that we also sort of accept. I think um, I talked to this um, research climatologist who gave me the sensors to measure um, the temperatures around, you know, all the different places uh, from Arizona State, David Hondula. And he said, you know, when I talk to people, they think that they have a right to ask for clean air and clean water, but they don't think they have a right to ask for less heat. And so part of it's just a mindset that you can change. There's ways that heat is in your neighborhood. There's ways that heat might be in your kid's school. You know, we've had people die in nursing homes in California at a kind of an alarming rate. And actually in the Gulf Coast in Florida, um, when people weren't prepared for very he high heat events, like after hurricanes. And you can ask your nursing home um, for, your, for, the, for your loved one who's in a nursing home to tell you whether they have a plan for heat. And if they oh. don't, that tells you something. It's, it's something I just learned because I've been doing this investigation. It, it's something I just learned. So there's all these ways that heat is present in our lives already that you could just sort of think about differently. So the first thing I'd recommend is a transformation in thinking. And then you could start at the neighborhood level and make sure that there's, if your home for any reason becomes too hot, even if you have air conditioning, if your air conditioning doesn't work, is there some cool place that's not paved that has trees that you could sort of protect and nurture? And then beyond that, you know, I think you vote with your pocketbook and you vote with your uh, actual vote for politicians who are aware of these issues. That sounds pretty damn good to me. Take, yeah. take care of yourself and recognize that it is... I mean, plant a tree, but plant the right tree. Right, right. right. Yeah. And I feel like we could Not have a whole different tree. discussion on mm. on planting the right tree and why that is actually way more complicated than than people think. It's not just not palm trees. Awesome. That's <laughs> that's really, really helpful. Um. Yeah. Wow. Uh. Well, you've been here for a while and we thank you for that. <laughs> we want to sort of uh, run some lightning round questions, if that's okay. Molly, you remember. <laughs> yep, hopefully I do. these have evolved a little bit. Um, so Yesham, thank you again for your time today and your perspective. We we really mm -hmm. appreciate appreciate it um, coming to yes. the U.S. and and D.C. and and uh, and focusing on that area. We'll we'll hope to provide um, a better future for for a a small but but important uh, part of our country. So Yesham, uh, when was the first time in your life? Uh, when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? At a very young age. You know, I grew up in Turkey during a very hard time. It, I'll, I'll explain it to you like this. Uh, when I moved to the United States, I would not touch anything that's on the ground. For example, we would take our kids to the playground and there's like a bucket there. And if my kid touched it, I would scream and say, don't touch it. It could be a booby trap. And everybody around me would look like, where the hell did you grow up? I grew up a place where wow. th things were li like that. And I did not want to live in an environment where I'm always afraid all the time. So I, uh, which in our neighborhood, we organized walking parties. Like we'd walk anywhere, not worry about somebody shooting at us. If you were in a group, you're less likely to be um, hit. And that meant that I can change my environment if I really put my mind to it. And then, you know, I moved to the United States when I was 21 and, you know, never looked back and never even thought about, can I do this? Will I ever be, uh, will I, you know, will I, Succeed? Will I not succeed? Can I create the right environment for myself? 
never even doubted it. And I, I'm kind of grateful because the U.S. is a fantastic place to exercise this kind of will. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I, you know, I would not have accomplished what I accomplished here in a different environment, in a different country. That's kind of why it's hard to see like the Trump administration right now. It's terrible. It, I have this internal migration to somewhere else. <laughs> I don't want to <laughs> even think about it. Sure. Wow. Sure. Wow. That is, that is Im- impactful. Molly, you doing anything uh, change-worthy or meaningful lately? <laughs> you know what? I um, This is a very small thing, but it's inspired by what kind of could be my answer to your question to Yassim. Um, when I was growing up, I went to a Catholic school where the, the nuns, man, they taught us a lot about social justice. And uh, we had novena and we always did um, a lot of uh, like clothing drives and food drives during the holidays. A friend of mine and I are sponsoring some families for LAUSD's Homeless Family Program. So uh, after I do this taping, I'm going to go to um, Walmart and get them some things on their gift list. That's awesome. Hell yeah. That's awesome. Um, and and something everybody can do. Yashim, who is someone in your life that has positively impacted your work in the past six months? Oh, I'll tell you who. It was Arnie Duncan, the Secretary of Education under Obama. I had a chance to meet him um, in November and ended up reading his book. And the way he, you know, I've talked about education for a very long time. We do have an education program in my organization. But it made me realize like this transition from high school to college is so difficult. And Mm. his focus on really expanding public education to grade 13 and 14 I'm completely bought into it. And that's and now we decided to work on this issue and make it real in the District of Columbia. It was, a very, it was very eye-opening for me. Awesome. Uh, Molly, I, I don't know if it's been six months since we talked to you, but uh, <laughs> anybody, uh, anybody new, anybody specific that's, that's impacted your hustle, your day-to-day? I mean, I always get impacted. I think I usually say something like somebody I just interviewed. And um, in this case, I'm thinking of a guy named Jose, who's a warehouse worker who experienced heat at work. These The warehouse workers I measured spent time above a heat index of 90 degrees, half to (sighs) three quarters of the time. Yeah, and and so this guy was super tough, but he was in his late forties, and he'd been doing this for twenty years, and he was really starting to feel the heat. You know, he really taught me something about complaining because it took me uh, like four or five tries to get him to tell me actually how he felt about it, and it really mm. reminded me that there's it, you, sometimes you have to work really hard to find out what the actual truth is. Sure. Wow. Why do you think it took a while for him to? Speak up. A couple of, I mean, um, I think he's very macho and Mm -hmm. didn't want to show weakness by complaining about heat. But I also think, you know, sometimes people think they can't talk about a problem. And um, if there's something that I learned in the last um, year from other people, both professionally and personally, it's that um, there's really no harm in speaking up. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is wild, though, how how, uh, one could feel so strongly that way. Like I, I can relate. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Yesham, uh, what do you do when you feel overwhelmed specifically? What is your, what is your self care? Exercise and read a book. 
I don't watch TV, so uh, most of my entertainment is in the form of a book. I like it. Have yeah. you read anything good lately? What are you reading now? Probably three books at the same time. I'm reading a book on the uh, sort of workforce development and um, what can be done about it. I am just starting a book by a Chinese author about sort of like group of women banding together. I'll have to look up the names. I'm very bad with names. No, no problem. I've just finished reading a book about housing markets in LA. So that was very cool. Very cool. I love I love that those are the books that were like, like I just finished like reading a stupid book and I thought it was great. Like your, your fun <laughs> books are like these very important. Right. Good for you. Well, that's fine. We're lucky to have her. Yes, we are. Uh, Molly, what have you been doing lately when you feel overwhelmed by everything? Uh, I go to Koreatown and I get dumplings and then I go to the Korean movie theater, which has $7 (laughs) Tuesdays. And there's basically five kinds of Korean movies. There's like gangster movies, like very slow romantic movies, bizarre (laughs) fantasies. There's like unlikely friendships between old people and young people. And then kind of recent political stories of Korea. Wow. And I like basically learning Korean history through its films. It'd basically be like if you thought you knew American history because you watched Spotlight. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. That's awesome. <laughs> that's amazing. That's wow. that's pretty amazing. Also seven dollars for the movie. Also, can't beat also it. the dumplings. Seven dollars for the movie plus dumplings. Yeah, we're gonna like, have to can't... we're gonna have to talk about that dumplings. Do you ever hit up the spa? The spas in Koreatown are fantastic. Yeah, my wife yeah. lives there. Oh, God, they're heavy. <laughs> yeah, I know. They are very good. Um, uh, Yeshim, how, how do you consume the news usually? Not television, we know that. Not television, true print, largely. I actually try to read the, you know, paper, hold it in my hand. Yeah, so yeah. I continue to subscribe to everything. Um, I hate Twitter. I mean, <laughs> I t- tweet, but like the idea of like rolling your thumb down to catch one thing after another it puts me in a trance and like as my as my screen scrolls down my also mood just sort of sinks yeah i feel the same way about facebook too like that scrolling down to me i always visualize it in my mind's eye as me kind of gradually falling down and crumbling <laughs> so i hate that good lord um um, but I, I mean, I try to catch up um, both with local news and and also uh, national and international news through print. Got I can't it. remember the last time I held a newspaper. If that isn't a perfect indictment of social media. Yeah, wow. I don't know. Uh, Molly, I, I, I don't recall your answer. How are you keeping up with the news these days? I mean, I think I should obviously say radio first and then copy <laughs> all of Yassim's answer. And then also something I do is ask everybody I talk to where they get their news and then I try to do it their way. Oh, cool. So, um, because then I learn why other people are interested in things that I'm not interested in or where there's something that I should be paying attention to that I haven't been. And honestly, sometimes that means that I read conservative blogs and um, watch Fox News just because every once in a while it's important to remember how people lose track of facts. Absolutely. Yikes. Absolutely. Yeshem, if you could Amazon Prime one book to the president, uh, what would it be? Ha, current president. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, the, current, yeah. uh, the current president of the United States. Current, Sorry. as uh, of whenever this, uh, uh-huh. yeah, assuming he's still there, yes. How cruel can I be? Uh, you know, we have had everything from coloring books to the Constitution. We've had a few repeats. We, we basically, we have an Amazon Prime wish list uh, that we... Uh, I have. 
for our listeners go to and, and they can click on the books, the list that everyone's recommended and it goes to the White House. Uh, so we'd love to know what yours is. I have a perfect answer. The book is called The Man Who Reads Love Stories. And it is about a Amazon man in search of a wild cat. And he's put in this mission because he's the only one who can actually talk to the Indians. It is a book by, uh, it's actually called The Old Man Who Reads Love Stories. Yeah. It's a book by Luis Sepulveda. It's about 40 pages. I would like to send him this book in Spanish to him. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, that's amazing. Excellent. I love it. Uh, Molly, do you have uh, a new answer for us? Anything new? You know, I just, I continue to not believe in wasting my good book buying money mm -hmm. on um, sending it to the sure, president. Sure, sure. Um, so, yeah, that's fair. I mean, the one thing I would say is a book that is probably about people he knows um, is that I read this book called uh, Dancing in the Glory of Monsters by Jason Stearns, basically about kleptocracies in Africa. Mm -hmm. And I feel like um, that's a book that he might want to comment factually on oh. because he might understand the business practices of some of the people. Yeah, those are his people. Yeah, exactly. But no, I spend my book buying money on poor kids who want to read books. I love that. Awesome. Good, good answer. I appreciate it. Hey guys, Yasim, I know you said uh, you hate social media with the passion of a thousand sons, but where, could, mm -hmm. where can mm -hmm. our listeners follow you online? <laughs> <laughs> on Twitter. <laughs> oh, yeah, I write a lot on our uh, website, dcpolicycenter.org. And I try to tweet uh, sort of about the academic papers that I read in a way that relates to people. So <laughs> what, what I do every night. What's your Twitter handle? Yeah. Don't know. It's Y-E-S-I-M-S-Y. -S awesome. Awesome. We will put that in the show notes. And Molly, yours? Molly Dacious. Molly Dacious. Awesome. Perfect. We can't thank you both enough for your time today, your perspective. Uh, loved hearing uh, the discussion between you two on, 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 on the, the, uh, the com 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 comparing and contrasting two uh, troubled, complicated, important, uh, uh -huh. and fundamental cities uh, in America now and, and going forward. Uh, who have unique but very shared challenges and and couldn't be more different in a lot of ways, but couldn't couldn't be more similar. So, uh, thank you so much for all that you do and uh, for your time today. And uh, please keep keep kicking ass out there. We we look forward to talking to you guys some more. Thank you for having me. Of course, keep going, guys. Great. All right. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you so guys. much. Very, Talk very soon. Much. Take care. Okay. Right. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks to our incredible guest today, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Uh, just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, 
rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. <laughs> and you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jam and music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.